Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Healing the Nations podcast, our podcast on religious liberty, end-time events, and current events. And we have a very special guest here today. We have Kevin Burton, a historian from Southern Adventist University. Mr. Burton, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. My pleasure. So, Mr. Burton, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing right now? I'm concurrently a PhD candidate in American religious history, and that means I've done everything, including my comprehensive exams, except for writing and finishing my dissertation. And I'm doing that through Florida State University, and I'm writing on Millerite and Advent Christian and Seventh-day Adventist involvement in the abolition movement between the late 1820s through into the Civil War. And I'm also uh, an instructor in the History and Political Studies Department here at Southern Adventist University. Now, you did wide work on the early Seventh-day Adventist pioneers and their activism in social issues. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, I really do specialize in Seventh-day Adventist history. Um, and I would add Millerite history to that with my dissertation. Um, but I am very well trained in the larger context of American religious history to know how to compare and how to understand how uh, we as Adventists in the broad sense, meaning Millerites and Seventh-day Adventists, fit into the, the story of America. Um, but yeah, I, I started uh, really getting into Adventist history many years ago. Um, I wrote my MA thesis on uh, uh, leadership conflict that we had in our church, the time when we placed one man <laughs> in charge of everybody. Um, that was GC policy for a while. Um, and then we voted that out after a few years. And so that was fun. And I, I really got into Adventist history in depth through that process. I wrote several hundred pages on that topic. And then I've continued ever since. Shortly after I did that, I got into Adventism in the Civil War. And I was unconvinced and not persuaded by the historiography. In other words, the, the books and articles that had been written on Adventism in the Civil War. Everyone had said that there were no Seventh-day Adventist soldiers except for maybe a couple who volunteered and then they all got disfellowshipped. And then we had some draftees. We didn't know anything about them. And I was like, that just doesn't seem convincing. And so I started looking through uh, sources that you would assume that everyone had already checked, like obituaries and letters. <laughs> but apparently people hadn't. And so that launched me into uh, research on the Civil War. And I found out that, my word, we had several hundred Adventists in the Civil War. Um, in fact, my estimate is that we had at least 400 um, and that's uh, significant because we only had about 3,500 members in the church at the time, roughly speaking. So you had at least probably 10% of men of military age who were in the war. And most of them, um, and this shouldn't surprise anyone who's really familiar with Civil War history, most of them were volunteers. And that's because the Civil War was a volunteer war. The draft was enacted, but there weren't that many people drafted comparatively. Um, almost everybody volunteered. I was never really concerned with the combatancy versus non-combatancy question, to be quite honest with you. And so finding all of these soldiers sort of thrust me into that debate and discussion. And I'm like, well, clearly uh, our Adventist pioneers were not as committed to pacifism as we once thought. And I was a little disappointed with that to a degree because I am myself a pacifist. But I mean, it's true. So I said, hey, you know, whatever's true is true. And it's also interesting to me too and and as a pacifist i struggle with the civil war because of the fact that i realized that if there was ever a just war this would have been it i mean 
uh, to liberate the slaves was incredibly important and it took a bloody civil war. And so to find out that Avenus were a part of that process was in a way also satisfying. And so that was really my main interest is I wanted to know, did we have any Avenus who actually participated in trying to abolish slavery? Whether or not they enlisted for that purpose or not is irrelevant because the fact is, as the soldiers of the North, they did help emancipate slavery. And so I was satisfied to, to find that. And I have a list now of over 70 names of people, um, as well as other sources that help us get a solid estimate of how many Avenus were in the war. And so that really led me into my dissertation. But I was always more interested in the slavery politics side of the question rather than like the pacifism side of the question, which really that is political, too. And so I started to answer the question that uh, is out there. You read Adventist history books and they're going to tell you that Millerites and Seventh-day Adventists both, that they might have been involved in abolition for a time, but then they became Millerites and they became ex-abolitionists and they gave up all social reform. And I said, that seems really strange to me. Why would a belief in the Second Advent doctrine supposedly make you think that, like make you do that? And then also, what about all the really radical things I knew Seventh-day Adventists said about slavery? Like, is that not abolition? Could you not consider that abolition uh, work as well? And so I, I started doing uh, research and found out that that simple narrative is unbelievably uh, and inaccurate, primarily because it's so simplistic. There are some, I'm sure, there are some Millerites who literally probably did give up social reform, but they are a tiny minority. In fact, I don't know of any by name. Some people think and assume that Joseph Bates, because he writes in his autobiography, that he quit the abolitionist societies. They assume that that means that he became an ex-abolitionist. Well, if you start looking at Joseph Bates' life and work, um, and if you read his autobiography uh, carefully, uh, you'll see that he doesn't really do that. He, he does quit the abolitionist societies, but to be a member of an abolitionist society is not a requisite uh, thing to be considered an abolitionist. <laughs> there are numerous abolitionists in American history who were never members of an anti-slavery society. So that is irrelevant. And historians have pointed that out. And Joseph Bates makes it very clear that he continues his advocacy of uh, abolition he really just takes a, a different tactic. He shifts tactics. And so whereas he had been an active member in an abolitionist society, he starts to become a preacher and, and itinerate in his ministry, even going down south. And so he's adamant that he will not baptize anyone into the faith unless they first renounce any pro-slavery views that they hold. <laughs> and so that's something he specifies in his autobiography that people should take more seriously. And also he has very uh, many radical statements that he makes, particularly if you read his writings, the tracts that attracted James and Ellen White to the Sabbath, for example, and others that uh, were written in the context of the Mexican-American War and debates on whether or not Texas will enter the Union as a, as a slave or free state. He has some extremely uh, radical statements that he makes about the United States and about slavery that are very clearly abolitionist. And so I started to realize that uh, the historiography on, on Millerism and Adventism is too simplistic. It is driven by and overdetermined by bad theory. The theory that belief in the soon second coming of Jesus makes you somehow asocial or apolitical is a complete farce. And also the belief that it makes you somehow 
socially conservative is also a farce. That may be true, and I think it is true for evangelicalism, primarily in the late 19th and, and 20th centuries, but Adventism shows, Miller's and Seventh-day Adventists show that those beliefs in the soon coming of Christ were actually tied with a liberal agenda. And I know that people are concerned with those words, liberal and conservative. Please don't assume that I mean Democrat and Republican when I use those terms. Um, that is definitely not what I mean. What you need to understand is that historically speaking, Millerites and Seventh-day Adventists did not identify as conservatives. They identified as liberals. And the agenda that they were promoting was the opposite of the agenda that self-proclaimed conservatives, the evangelical majority, was not participating in. Um, a lot of people have assumed, because uh, there are texts out there that actually are incorrect, and so people have assumed that uh, during the Second Great Awakening, um, all of these revivals happened, and that just made the North, like, it sweep through the North, and they became, every, all the evangelicals became abolitionists and drove the anti-slavery societies and the slaves caused forward and all of this kind of thing. And that's entirely inaccurate. And so let me explain that briefly. You can pick up books uh, by experts on revivalism. Take uh, Robert Abzug's uh, Cosmos Crumbling, for example. Or there's also uh, Walter's book, American Revivalism, I think is the name of it. And uh, they actually explicitly state that while uh, the revivals did happen, that almost all of the people who were converted in the revivals did not get involved in any social reform, let alone anti-slavery, which was the most controversial at the time. Um, but even stuff like temperance, which was more embraced by evangelicals, was never something that most people, most evangelicals participated in. And so um, that should be clear. However, um, it's also important to state that in spite of that fact, in spite of the fact that the evangelical majority is conservative and not abolitionist and in many cases anti-abolitionist, nevertheless, there are many radical evangelicals. Um, we can talk about the Tappan brothers. We could talk about, um, oh, there's a whole bunch of other people. Joshua Leavitt. There's uh, Theodore Dwight Weld. I mean, I could go on and on. And they are very firm evangelicals and abolitionists, but they are not representative of their majority. But nevertheless, it's important to know that the majority of the abolitionist movement, it is driven by evangelicals. But those evangelicals are a minority within evangelicalism in America, including the North. And so those are the kinds of fine details that people have missed in regard to history. And so the, to bring it back full circle, the point is, is that Millerites and Seventh-day Adventists, when they are advocating in such strong language for abolition, the total abolition of slavery immediately, as well as for equal rights for the oppressed, whenever they're doing that and whenever they're condemning the American government, North and South, for allowing this to happen. And this is Adventists all across the board, including Ellen White, is very strong in all of this. Whenever you see that, there is no way that you can say that that is a conservative agenda or something that conservatives are supporting. It is the exact opposite. Um, and so that's what I mean by liberalism. Adventists are being socially liberal because they are in a tiny minority that never reached more than 2% of the northern population that is advocating for equal rights for black men and women. And that is unheard of almost in the north as well as the south. In the north, it's overrun by Jim Crow practices and laws. Schools are segregated. Churches are segregated. Train cars and transportation, stagecoaches, you name it, everything is segregated. 
And Adventists are adamant about trying to abolish such practices and laws, and they actually do help that to happen on several occasions, particularly in the state of Massachusetts. And so it's definitely something that has a very liberal and radical agenda. And so I think that that is important for people to understand and know today. And I think it's also encouraging because while you might call that a liberal agenda um, in the 19th century, it shouldn't be something that anyone should be scared of as our pioneers did to promote a quote unquote socially liberal agenda of assisting and helping uh, the oppressed is something that they were very much able to do by upholding their faith that we still treasure. The three angels' messages, the Sabbath, I mean, I could go on and on. They are promoting and spreading that abroad while also trying to take care of the oppressed. We can call that political. It really is. But if you're afraid of the word political, then don't get turned off by it because you can call it religious. It doesn't really matter what you call it. Um, The point is, is that our pioneers did it. And no one should be using some sort of uh, excuse like, oh, we don't want to get involved in politics um, or whatever, because our pioneers did it. And you (laughs) really don't have any excuse, in my personal opinion. That's me speaking not as a historian anymore. That's me speaking as an Adventist in the 21st century. Now, in the 1850s, our Adventist leaders in their publications were very, very, very direct in their rebukes to the United States of America. Uh, mm-hmm. from Uriah Smith to J.N. Andrews to Ellen White herself advocating the violation of federal law of the uh, Compromise of 1850 of the Fugitive Slave Laws. And when the Civil War happened in the 1860s, I'm amazed, and maybe you could answer this question. Uh, President Lincoln had these sedition laws in the North that if you spoke against the government, uh, you could be imprisoned or <laughs> deported to the South or you know, habeas corpus was taken away. How did Adventists survive with such direct rebukes of the United States during that time? That is a great question, Peter. And I know that you are able to ask that question because you did your master's thesis on this subject as well. Not very many people are going to think to ask that question. That is a good question. And I'm happy to answer that question. So unfortunately, there is very little work that has been done on state surveillance during the Civil War. And one of the reasons that that is the case is because so many of the sources have been lost. But you are absolutely correct. The North was filled with all sorts of laws put in place and all sorts of forms of surveillance. There are some sources that I can point people to if they want to read a little bit on it. Um, There's a book that's devoted to the subject. um, It's called uh, Surveillance and Spies in the Civil War. There's also a couple of books that talk about religion and the state surveillance of religion during the Civil War. And it was extensive. Um, And so, yes, that's a very good question. Did this impact Seventh-day Adventists? I think the answer is probably without question, yes. It has to be studied in more detail, but I can give you a few crumbs. I can give you a few things that I have seen that point in that direction. So James White makes it clear that non-Adventists are reading Uh, the Adventist press. That means uh, the Review and Herald and the Youth Instructor during the war. They are reading that. And James White indicated that he could not print more stuff on pacifism during the war because he was convinced that people in Battle Creek would burn down uh, the Review and Herald office. And so that needs to be explained perhaps a little bit. Most people may not be aware of what state surveillance entails and what it means. 
almost in every occurrences throughout the 19th, 20th centuries, probably just about every period of, of state surveillance you, you want to talk about. Citizen spies, which you might call citizen spies, are an incredibly important arm of the state. Now, I call them an arm of the state not because they are employed by the state. They are not. But by serving the state as informants, they become uh, investigative arms of the state. And so you have citizens uh, doing this kind of service and reporting on and informing on people for supposed disloyalty throughout the North. And it is prevalent. It is absolutely prevalent. And so for James White to say that he's concerned that people are going to destroy the Review and Herald office if he prints too much on pacifism is incredibly telling, because what that probably means is that he was having, quote unquote, what we might call citizen spies. That would be a term that we would use that they would probably would not have used at the time. Maybe they would have. They were apparently watching the review office, and it wasn't just Battle Creek. James and Ellen White were incredibly concerned about Seventh-day Adventists in Iowa. And that is because uh, Adventists in Iowa, in the county of Lynn, Lynn County, Iowa, like near Marion, uh, the town of Marion, uh, which, will, you know, this is where we get the, the Marion Party comes from there. And this is all connected to that, actually, if anyone knows Adventist history. The whites were really concerned about there because the Adventists there were absolutely thoroughgoing pacifists to the point where they refused to serve in any capacity if they were drafted. And they were willing to take a bullet if they were drafted. And so... The whites were very concerned that people would think that Adventism as a denomination was pro-slavery because of people's pacifism. And so this is one of the reasons the whites try to walk more of a middle line on the issue. I think that they preferred non-resistance, definitely, but they wanted people in the North to know that we were not supportive of slavery or the rebellion. And so they were clear that the Adventists in Iowa were, were probably acting, well, in their opinion, not even probably, that they were acting um, in a dangerous sort of capacity because people would misunderstand. And again, this sort of concern suggests that there is some state surveillance happening, probably originating with citizen spies and then leaking into probably uh, other sort of uh, state bureaucratic things, which the biggest one, of course, is the army at the time. And so there is evidence that this is a concern. However, the biggest concern, Peter, is not the North. The biggest concern that I have seen in, in documentation is the South. And the reason the South is concerned is because we are damning slavery very consistently. And so what's really fascinating is that before the Civil War even breaks out, we run into conflict with state authorities in the South, in the border states. Let me preface this in a few ways first. Number one, it's important to know that there were no Seventh-day Adventists in the Deep South. We had just a few dozen, probably, maybe 50, I would say absolutely no more than 100 Adventists in border states, namely Kentucky and Missouri. Okay, And so very few Seventh-day Adventists in slave-holding territory. But there are a few. And after Nat Turner's rebellion in 1831, I have to back up even more to explain this part of Adventist history. After Nat Turner's rebellion in 1831, and he killed, I think it was, I think it was 57 uh, white Americans, and the majority of them were actually women and children. He and his band of uh, slaves there that were revolting. That terrified the South, and it's impossible to overestimate how much that terrified the South because the South was always worried about slave revolts. And after Nat Turner, which was the largest slave revolt in America's history, they enacted 
incredible draconian laws in the South. Most states forbid slaves to read after that. And so therefore, since they are not allowed to read, they are not allowed to be instructed in religious things, which is why Ellen White talks in her testament is about the South forbidding slaves to become Christians and so forth. And there's truth to that. That's exactly what was happening. They're not allowing them to read. Nat Turner could read. And so they thought that because of him being able to read, he had read abolitionist tract William Lloyd Garrison and a free black from Boston named David Walker. And so they outlawed reading in most states in the South. They also put laws into effect that made it illegal to send abolitionist material from the North to the South. And so this was important and it becomes increasingly important as you march through the 1850s. The South realized it was easy to identify stuff like the Liberator, which was solely devoted to the abolition of slavery. And so William Lloyd Garris, 1835, abolitionists send a mass literature drive to send stuff into the South. And almost 100 percent of all that literature was blocked and never reached its intended audience. And so lots of money was spent and actually wasted because of laws that the post office had in effect that made it illegal to send abolitionist material in the mail. Well, by the time you get to the late 1850s, they're becoming even stricter as tensions in America are rising. And they start to more carefully scrutinize religious material. And they start to read Adventist stuff and they outlaw it. Seventh-day Adventist material becomes illegal contraband in the South. And so James White makes it very clear that they can't send any of their literature, the review or their books and tracts, into the South because of the condemnation Seventh-day Adventists had on slavery. And when some of our ministers tried to go to the border South, in Missouri, for example, they are threatened with imprisonment and fined, and they have their literature confiscated and destroyed. And so this is serious. And this is an important point. This is why I'm comfortable saying that what Seventh-day Adventists were doing was political. It's because when you think about what they're doing, they're writing, they're preaching, And yet there were political consequences to those actions. And you cannot deny that because the South is forbidding Seventh-day Adventist literature to be sent to the South because they're lumping it with abolitionist material. That's a very, very political thing. And the point is, is that preaching and publishing, that is a political act. And Adventists were very much against partisanship, being extremely loyal to party. But that doesn't mean that what they were doing was somehow apolitical, just the opposite, in fact. And so to come full circle to your question, North and South, yes, Peter, we do have evidence that um, Adventists were having some surveillance and attention brought to them. However, the arguments that Adventists were making and their doctrines of the two-horned beast never riled up the North to the degree that they did the South. And that's telling. And that will definitely change. And, And it's another subject for another day. But I could tell you uh, about the level of state surveillance that happened to the Seventh-day Adventist Church during World War One, That is when it was extensive, north and south. That was a huge deal. I don't see the evidence that it was nearly as big of a deal during the Civil War, but there is evidence that that was happening and that people were questioning, particularly in the south, the loyalty of uh, Adventists, but north as well. So following up on that, you've uncovered a development of our prophetic understanding of Revelation 13:11 from our pioneers. Mm-hmm. This uh, development of as the lamb that speaks as the dragon that's tied to slavery. The dragon was speaking present tense, not future tense. Tell us more about that, what you found. 
Sure. Well, first, I want to give credit to where it's due. I, I did not come up with that specific argument, although I think I've strengthened it a lot with my re research. But you can look at Doug Morgan's uh, book, Adventism in the American Republic, that was published in 2001. And he saw that back then. He understood the nuance there where Adventists were speaking present tense that America is the beast now. And it wasn't until World War One. Uh, that they started to shift. That shift does take place, and that's another story, but that shift does take place because the state, federal government, confronted us. They said, either you change it or you, you go to prison for a long time, and we said, okay, we'll change it, and we started to speak about it as a future thing. But to, to talk about the issue of slavery specifically, it's really clear. I mean, it's all over the review. It's in published tracts. It's everywhere. So if you go through and you look at the primary sources and you see how Adventists are talking about the two-horned beast, which is they tie that in all the time with the three angels message. And that's because the third angel talks about those who worship the beast in his image and receive the mark on their hand and forehead will not be saved, etc. And so who is that beast that's making people receive that mark, etc.? That is the two-horned beast. And so you cannot separate uh, Revelation 13 and 14. And, uh, and Adventists did not do that. And so, yes consistently over and over again they talk about slavery and uh the two-horned beast and that is the primary focus that they have to explain what they're doing is to look at that beast in scripture and that beast is described as having two horns that are like lamb-like but this beast even though it has two lamb-like horns and always it looks like a lamb looks innocent etc it speaks like a dragon and so Avenus associated those two horns with civil and religious liberty, two things that America claimed and boasted of in their Constitution and First Amendment and other places, etc. Throughout published writings, very common claims that uh, this is a land of religious liberty. This is a land of civil liberty, um, especially after all white men were allowed to vote. I mean, that was a very rare thing at the time for all white men in a country to vote. And so, wow, what a land of, of civil liberty as well as religious liberty. But Adventists saw through this duplicitousness. And that's because they were a minority. It's because they, too, understood oppression because they, too, were oppressed. Um, there were laws in most states, almost all states in which Adventists lived, that said, but you are not allowed to work on Sunday. And so... That was a very tough thing. And you see, like in some private correspondence I've read, where some Adventists are really wrestling with this. They're like, can I do this? Can I actually work on Sunday? Even though they believed in the Seventh-day Sabbath, they didn't know if they should actually work on Sunday, if it was worth the risk. And so some Adventists had no problem. And they just took the risk and they worked anyways. But others, they decided that they had to observe the Sabbath on Saturday and then also not work on Sunday so that they wouldn't come into conflict with the law. And some Sabbath keepers were arrested during that time, although it would become a much bigger deal um, in the 1880s, 1890s, and early 1900s. And so um, that was a real threat. And so they understood what it was to be oppressed as a minority. And they were minority rights activists. And so they recognized that it wasn't just them who was being oppressed as a minority. Religiously speaking, they constantly talk about the Quakers and Baptists who had been persecuted previous decades to a very high degree. And they also talk about other issues regarding uh, religious liberty, like they're very anti-creedal. And so they view creeds as a form of, of oppression, in fact, where you are forced to uh, adhere to something that's not biblical. And so they had a variety of things that they talked about religiously. But the thing that they talked about the most in the antebellum period, the thing that proved that the, the two-horned beast 
was the United States of America most clearly to them was the fact that America claimed that all men were created equal and entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And yet they denied that by enslaving millions of people in the South and by denying blacks in the North their equal rights to white people. And so this is seen over and over and over again. I will read a few things here. Uriah Smith eloquently states in this poem that he writes called The Warning Voice of Time and Prophecy. And he's writing this in connection, specifically in connection with the two-horned beast. And after he mentions the two-horned beast in his poem, then he goes, he says this, millions that groan beneath oppression's rod, beneath the sin-forged chains of slavery, robbed of their rights to brutes degraded down and soul and body bound to others' will. Let their united cries and tears and groans that daily rise and call aloud on heaven for vengeance answer. Let the slave reply, O land of boasted freedom, thou hast given the lie to all thy loud professions fair of justice, liberty, and equal rights. And thou hast set a foul and heinous blot upon the sacred page of liberty. And whilst thou trafficest in the souls of men, thou hurlest defiance, proud in the face of heaven, soon to be answered with avenging doom. And so that's very, very clear. That's very, very clear on a number of levels. Damning America for denying equal rights to minority groups. I mean, Uriah Smith makes it very clear that we're talking about equal rights here. And what I want to stress, too, is that this is so prevalent, Peter. It's not just our ministers and leaders. It's not just white men. We have a couple of black Adventist ministers at the time who are also preaching this. We also have women who are doing this as well. And so lay people are, are getting involved. The reason they're doing this is because Seventh-day Adventists put the two-horned beast on their 1850 prophecy chart. And so this was part of their fundamental beliefs. Everywhere they go and everywhere they're preaching the Seventh-day Adventist message, they are talking about slavery. They are talking about abolition. And they're damning America for denying equal rights to the oppressed. And so they are doing that everywhere they go. And lay people are doing it as well. I'll give you a couple of examples that I haven't shared anywhere else yet. So anyone in the Adventist church could buy the prophecy chart. And many lay people did. One that I wish we had more documentation on who is super fascinating to me is Arasa Buckland. Because she orders the 1850 prophecy chart in March 1853. And just like three months later, she and her husband moved to Virginia. One of the only like very rare Seventh-day Adventists who actually lived in the South. And so her and her husband moved to Virginia. And the very fact that she purchases that prophecy chart, and there's going to be several weeks of delay for the mail, of course. They're going to be working on packing up their stuff and, and having to travel out there, which all of that takes time. The fact that she orders it about three months before she goes suggests very strongly that she is ordering that prophecy chart to very much try to spread Seventh-day Adventism in Virginia. And so she goes down there. She actually writes a letter to the review that's published after she's been there a few months. She says that she's struggling down there. She is struggling to live, as she says, quote, among a people who enact and execute laws of, in violation to the plainest precepts of the gospel, who regard it a crime to undo a brother in bonds as we would they should do unto us. She's invoking the golden rule here and saying, hey, they are denying the gospel because they are enslaving people. And so because of that very fact, 
she is alone, isolated, unable. She actually goes on to, to say that she has tried to share her faith in hopes that she could actually make some success. She actually said she was unable to because of slavery. She couldn't find anybody inquiring for the narrow way or a close walk with God, even though she had tried. And so all of this is suggesting that she has that prophecy chart with her, and she's actually trying to preach this, which includes the doctrine of the two-horned beast that America is this beast because of slavery. And she's in the heartland of the Confederacy, right? I mean, Virginia becomes the capital of the Confederacy. And so she's doing this in the most... (laughs) controversial decade over the subject, the 1850s, which will, of course, lead to the Civil War. And so she's having trouble. She despairs and she says that, quote, not met with first one yet in her months that she had been down there. And she doubts actually, quote, if there are any. She says, if any, she's doubting there will be any. And then she laments. She says this. This is a quote. Oh, how long, oh, Lord, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long ere the voice of the oppressor shall cease from the land? Let us pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. She's drawing inspiration from the Lord's prayer itself to say this text is showing slavery is wrong because God's will is not being done on earth. And so she is wrestling with that. And I wish that we had more data on her. I wish we had more information from her. We have the fact that she orders a prophecy chart, leaves there a few months later. And then she tries to share her faith and fails. And then we know that she has to move back to Wisconsin, where she was from, a short time after that. So she eventually gets discouraged and ends up leaving. And I wish we knew more. There's an example. There's a woman, and she's not alone there. There's a woman sharing this faith. She's a lay person. And so you can see the depths that Adventists, not just our leaders, are taking. I, I can tell you more. I have more information on other lay people who are doing the exact same thing, including women. And so... This shows how prevalent this doctrine was. It penetrated every level of Adventism. And so it is not surprising that we really had virtually no, but there were some. Ellen White says very few. There were a few pro-slavery Adventists. And as we're marching through the 1850s, it becomes more and more controversial to be an abolitionist because people realize that it's potentially going to lead to a civil war. And so especially when the war breaks out, a lot of people in the North become anti-abolitionists. And so pro-slavery sympathies rise up to new heights right before and right at the beginning of the Civil War. And it's at that time that Ellen White sees in vision and, and confronts one pro-slavery Adventist, the only one we ever know by name, and his name was Alexander Ross. And she chooses that moment because there's all of a sudden it's clear that there's a problem here. She addresses him and she says, unless you change your ways immediately, this is a paraphrase, She says, unless you change your ways immediately, we will disfellowship you and we must disfellowship you. And so Ellen White made it very, very clear that pro-slavery Adventists must be disfellowshipped. And so that is how thorough Adventists were in trying to guard their abolitionist barriers and their condemnations of slavery. And Ellen White said when she's talking to Alexander Ross, she said it's, it's not just that he's speaking out against slavery. She basically says, this is also paraphrased, We must preserve the reputation of the Seventh-day Adventist church. She does not want anyone to assume or think that Seventh-day Adventists in any way supported slavery. And so that is very critical. And if you want to compare that, it's very evident that that is one of the ways that many people contributed to the abolitionist movement with things like that. Adventists denouncing slavery as a clear clear sin no questions asked we will not tolerate it in our presence and so if you harbor those thoughts in our congregations and our churches you're going to be kicked out 
because we will not tolerate that. And that is what a few, at least six other, what John R. McKivigan calls come outer sex. That's the same approach that they take. The biggest one of those groups is the Wesleyan Methodist Connection, and they split off from the, the Methodist Church over the issue of slavery, just like every other Protestant denomination did in the North. And so there were a few others who took a, a similar tactic that Adventists did, but they were all in the minority, almost all evangelicals. As McKivigan again points out in his book, The War Against Pro-Slavery Religion, almost all of them refused to condemn slavery as even a sin until well, well, well into the Civil War. And we could talk about other historians who have also made it clear that evangelicals were never as really concerned about abolishing slavery. So Grant Broderick, he has a book that came out recently called Our Country, uh, Northern Evangelicals and the Union During the Civil War Era. And he argues persuasively that among the evangelical majority in the North, even during the Civil War itself, they were not concerned so much about abolition of slavery they were primarily concerned about preserving the union. The abolition of slavery only became important to evangelicals because it was a means to preserve the union. And so all of these things are critically important. And if you want to understand Seventh-day Adventism and their abolitionism during this period, you have to understand the context. You have to compare. And you can see how they stand out as radically different. They were radicals. And so that shouldn't make anyone today uncomfortable. If you understand what I mean when I say radical and when I say liberal, and, and I explained those terms earlier. So hopefully that's not an issue. What I find this incredible is that they preached this message at a time when the United States was not a world power. It was, yeah. uh, you had uh, Prussia, you had uh, Spain, you had different kingdoms that were competing world powers at that time. And the United States was in the midst of a civil war, which is very incredible that they would preach this prophecy in a time when, it didn't look like the United States would be that superpower nation. That takes a right. lot of faith. How was this message preached during Reconstruction? I want to make a comment on what you said about the world before I get to that question during Reconstruction. Both of them are great questions, but do you mind if I do that? Oh, no, sure. Go ahead. Because one thing I want, to, I want to stress about Adventist prophecy that people should know and understand and about how this does actually still relate to abolitionism on a global scale. So Seventh-day Adventists are identifying America as a two-horned beast primarily because they recognize that the domain of the other beast in Revelation 13, the one that arises out of the sea that they identified with the papacy, already had broad reach in so many other countries in the world, Europe, Asia, Africa, you name it. And so they already felt that most of the world was covered. The beast that arose out of the sea was also talking about the same forms of oppression, religious and civil oppression. And so they talk about America as a two-horned beast. They want to emphasize that this is a global problem. And so they are never as clear and strong because Adventists were all pretty much entirely in America, aside from a few scattered in Canada, which is also North America, by the way, a few in Ireland, actually. And then you do have a few that rise up in the early 1860s with the work of Hannah Moore in Africa. But nevertheless, almost everybody's American. Okay, and so... They are primarily talking about American slavery, but even William Miller, William Miller condemns Napoleon for reinstituting slavery in France. Um, and there's also condemnation by Miller and others among slavery, among Muslim religions. And so they talk about slavery on the global scale, even though they don't talk about it as much as American slavery. And so 
Adventists did have a larger and broader perspective, even though they do focus most of their attention on America. Okay, now to go to Reconstruction, let me read to you what I call Uriah Smith's Juneteenth Prophecy. And this is an amazing, amazing statement. Okay, and I say Juneteenth Prophecy because of this. Obviously, that term didn't exist, and he doesn't call it that. But he publishes this article, Is Slavery Dead?, question mark, on June 20, 1865. And as everyone right now should know, hopefully, is that Juneteenth, the date we have for that is June 19 because of the date of the abolition of slavery in Texas. And that happened on June 19, 1865. Okay, but 155 years ago from our current year, Uriah Smith publishes on the very next day, in other words, June 20, this prophecy, it's very telling especially if you know the history of Reconstruction. He says, quote, this is a little long, but I think it's worth reading. He says, quote, the war has closed so far as bullets and bayonets are concerned, but there is a period of political war and strife before this nation, such as it has not probably for a long time been witness of. The question of the reconstruction of the rebel states is now coming up. And in this question, the status of the Negro is involved. What right shall he be granted to him? With what privilege shall he be clothed? Having helped to free the nation from a terrible rebellion. And that's significant right there. Let me interrupt here. That's significant because Uriah Smith is giving credit to black Union soldiers for helping to abolish slavery in America. That's something a lot of white Americans will never do. He actually gives them credit there. So let me continue on with the quote here. Having helped to free the nation from a terrible rebellion, Shall he, that is the Negro, now be accounted a citizen of that nation? Shall he have the right of suffrage? Shall he have the right to vote? This question, the president, and that's Andrew Johnson, by the way, in my opinion, one of the very worst presidents in the U.S. history. He vetoed every single measure that radical Republicans had tried to implement regarding radical reconstruction. So Uriah Smith says this question, the president, that is Andrew Johnson, has already declared must be decided by the people the whites of the respective states concerned. Then, this is where he gets really upset. Then to the Negro-hating whites of the South, it is to be left to say what rights the Negro shall have. That country to which the Negroes have always been loyal and which they have faithfully served leaves it to its and their bitterest enemies to say what their reward shall be, exclamation point. And will they grant the right of suffrage, the right of citizenship, or any other privilege which is to their power to withhold from them, question mark? The answer is apparent. With their natural spirit of hate against the colored race, embittered by a defeat which that race have helped to bring upon them, a defeat which they would not have suffered had not the North been helped by those whom they thus despise, it is easy to see how many favors they will be ready to bestow upon them. As well might we expect that the devil would all at once turn round and give immortality to a saint whom he has harassed and tormented all his long life, were it left to him to give as to suppose that the white tormentors of the colored race at the South filled with the most diabolical hate against them, will show them any humanity or mercy of which it is in their power to deprive them. And then how does the question of slavery stand? Answer. 
slavery will be dead only in name. It will still exist in fact. There will still be bondmen in this land bound in fetters of disenfranchisement, proscription, and prejudice, more galling and oppressive than the iron manacles that have heretofore clanked upon their bleeding limbs. I mean, that is a powerful statement, Peter. That is a powerful statement, and, and I call it the Juneteenth prophecy, not only because of the date that it was published, the date after June 19, 1865, but also because Uriah Smith was dead on. He wasn't intentionally speaking as a prophet like in vision or something like Ellen White did, but he predicted that if we go this route, which is what ends up happening, by and large, that there is going to be still, in effect, slavery, and that people will be denied their rights, etc. And that is what happens in American history. For a while, during Radical Reconstruction, the federal troops are down there, and they are able to enforce black suffrage, etc. And there are some blacks who are voted into office, etc. And these things happen. But in 1877, the federal troops pull out. And very quickly after that, things dive bomb into what we call Jim Crow, the Jim Crow South, um, which I mentioned earlier. Jim Crow actually was a northern invention, but after slavery was abolished, the South really quickly caught on and they made it even worse than it had ever been in the North. And so that's what goes on. And that's the very first of many condemnations that uh, Seventh-day Adventists were going to make about how Reconstruction is going and about its failures. And so... They remain very strong in their condemnations of America throughout Reconstruction in regard to African-Americans. And so hopefully that gives you a good example to your question. Yes. And continuing on, uh, we see that in the 1890s leading up to the 1900s. And that's Jeffrey Rosario's department, I think. It is. It is his department. Yep. Nevertheless, Jeffrey has told me enough so I can tell you one simple thing. Adventists continue on with this strong rhetoric of America being the beast currently, because when you get started to talk about the uh, Spanish-American War around the turn of the century, Adventists become very, very clear. And, and they had been earlier during the antebellum period that they were anti-empire. And so Adventists were against this idea of manifest destiny where white people are supposed to conquer all of North America. Adventists are at times quite critical of Americans trying to uh, build up an empire in North America. And then they extend that globally very strongly with people like A.T. Jones during the Spanish-American War and in a few years after that. But yes, you got to get Jeffrey Rosario on your podcast to tell you about that. He is the expert because he's writing his dissertation on it. I, mean, I ran into Percy McGann and also A.T. Jones about the yep. Philippines and Hawaii even. Yep, yep, and... yep, yep. And so it seems like there is a legacy of Adventism speaking against white civilization hegemony that is not in other churches. Absolutely. That is definitely true. And unfortunately, that basically got killed during World War I. That's where you see a shift happen in this stuff. Now, let's fast forward to World War I. We have the Sedition Acts in World War I, where you speak against the government, you're in trouble. You have the second Red Scare. You have the Palmer Raids. So Adventists were targeted during this time? They definitely were, to a very high degree. And so let me give you this in a nutshell. So the FBI, what we call the FBI, was originally called the Bureau of Investigation. They added the word federal in the 1930s. And so I'm just going to call it the FBI because that's what it is, even though that's not the technical term during World War I. But it's easier to follow. And so the FBI was founded in 1908, 
it was a small organization for a while, but during World War One, it explodes and it becomes a massive, massive force. And it will continue to grow throughout the 20th century. And during World War One, during this era, the stuff I'm going to share sounds shocking because it's entire violations of the First Amendment on both freedom of speech clause as well as the religious liberty clauses. And so the FBI, the state, they regularly violated First Amendment rights for numerous Americans and numerous religious groups. Probably every religion had some surveillance to a degree, but most of them were not critical of the government like Adventism was. And so they are not targeted in the same kind of way, in the same kind of manner as the Seventh-day Adventist church was. So what I want to say there to be clear is that Adventists are not singled out during World War I by the state to be surveilled, but they were intentionally targeted and heavily surveilled. And so to give that in a nutshell, just about every single one of our institutions was surveilled. Every single publishing house, whether it was owned by the church or it was an independent Seventh-day Adventist publishing house, all of them were heavily surveilled. And that means that they're scrutinizing the literature that they're, they're publishing, they're monitoring their mail, they're intercepting their telegrams, et cetera. All of that is happening. They had record of every single tract and missionary society that we had in North America. Probably all of our uh, sanitariums and many, if not most, or, or all of our, our schools were heavily targeted as well. This stuff was serious. Let me give you an example. Like the state was convinced, Peter, that there was a gang of Seventh-day Adventist spies operating from Union College. I mean, I'm not kidding. They had agents come in there interviewing the president, faculty, people that are there in the churches. They get our church record books and they go through all the lists of names. I mean, it's it's intense. And they thought they did that because they were convinced that there were actually a gang of spies that were operating and hiding out under the auspices of Seventh-day Adventism at Union College. And that's not a unique occurrence. They thought that the Seventh-day Adventist Church was, in fact, overrun with spies and call porter after call porter after call porter. And even many of our ministers as well, they're being confronted by police, by FBI agents, by military personnel, by members of the post office, members of the Department of Agriculture. I kid you not. I mean, the, the state has got lots of investigative arms. And so all of these are being used in some form or fashion to surveil Adventism. And they are coming after our call porters because of the literature that they're selling. And some of our call porters are detained, scrutinized through questioning. Some of them are jailed. Some of them are fined. This is serious. And so our ministers, too, and our churches and our camp meetings, there are state agents who are secretly infiltrating, writing down sermons and writing down the things are, that people are saying, et cetera. So, for example, there were some state agents who go in and they listening to F.C. Gilbert preach. He was a Jewish convert to Seventh-day Adventism and a really important leader in Adventist history. And they were thoroughly convinced, absolutely thoroughly uh, convinced that he was a communist. And they were actually convinced that everything the Review and Herald published was thoroughly red. And I mean the color, and that's a reference to communism. And so they thought that Seventh-day Adventism was highly dangerous, incredibly subversive. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that we were a global church. Many of our members came from the German Empire at the time, which included a lot more territory than the current country of Germany. And so we had a significant number of immigrants in our church. So that's a big deal. We also have a lot of issues with non-combatancy. And on at least one occasion, they throw two Seventh-day Adventists into the insane asylum along with their mother. 
And you're just like, what does this have to do with anything? She's not drafted. But they throw the mother and two sons into an insane asylum in the state of Colorado because they refuse to bear arms. The issue with non-combatancy is also huge. But then another major factor, we're also preaching the doctrine of the two-horned beast and saying that America right now is this beast and because of various forms of civil and religious liberty violations. And so the state gets a hold of this material and they're highly concerned. And to put this in a, a good perspective that you need to understand to know the seriousness of this, I can talk about Jehovah's Witnesses at this time. Now, they didn't have the name Jehovah's Witnesses until the 1930s. During the World War I era, they were called the International Bible Student Association. But it's the same people. It's the Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay. And so many people in America, and you can read Adventists admitting this. You can see it in other forms and fashions. They confuse Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses all the time. And a primary reason is that there are similarities in our theology. They, too, look up to William Miller, although more critically than we do, and they find common heritage with us to a degree. And so they are, in a sense, our apocalyptic cousins. And so the state is heavily surveilling the Jehovah's Witnesses. And for the same reason, they're very critical of the state and all this kind of stuff. They are highly critical of them. And so they go to the Jehovah's Witnesses first, and they come to the leaders and they say, Look, you have violated the Sedition Act and other laws, etc. They got put on trial. And after going through the trial, the top eight leaders of the church were sentenced to 80 years in prison. 80 years. Now, it's important to emphasize, however, that those were four consecutive terms of 20 years. And so, in effect, it was only 20. But still, 20 years of prison, that is a ton of time. And so what's significant about this is not only the confusion between us and Jehovah's Witnesses, but also the fact that I found in my research that it was only four days after that that they come knocking to us and they start to open up the most intense wave of surveillance on the Seventh-day Adventist Church. They start highly scrutinizing our publications and they give us the same ultimatum. Either you change what you're publishing or you go to prison for a very long time. And there was no joke. Seventh-day Adventist leaders just witnessed this happening to the Jehovah's Witness leaders. And so they knew that the state was not joking. And there were many cases already by that point where Seventh-day Adventist tracts and books, even by our General Conference President, A.G. Daniels, that had been declared uh, seditious. The post office was outlawing our tracts and books to be sent through the mail. The military was confiscating and destroying these things. I mean, it, it was serious. And so they come to us at this time, four days after putting Jehovah's Witness leaders in prison, and they say, either you change or you go to prison. And our leaders faced with that conflict, they said, we'll change it. And they did. And so you can look at numerous tracts and books that they force us to change. And many of them actually admit that they say, like in the 1918 publication, they say this tract or this book or whatever it was has passed the chief military censor and they give a date. And so you see that. But some of them, they didn't admit that. And one of the most critical texts was the Bible readings from the home circle, which was one of the most important culprit texts in our history. And so the 1916 edition had come out. They're still talking about America as currently the two-horned beast and the same kind of message that we've been sharing for decades and decades and decades since before the Civil War, since 1850, in fact. But then 1918, they republished that thing. They don't ever specify that they had revised it. They never admit publicly that they have done so. They eventually will admit to a small group of ministers at the 1919 Bible Conference that they had changed it, but they never told the public that they did. And what they changed is critical. 
they specified that America is not currently the two-horned beast, but that it will become so in the future. And this is what Doug Morgan pointed out with this text. He found this before I did, but he's dead on, even though he didn't know about the state surveillance driving this issue. And so they changed that. And they say that America will become the two-horned beast at a future date. And they also start to emphasize at this point that it's really only a national Sunday law. And whenever America enacts a national Sunday law, then it's going to become the two-horned beast. And so effectively, they cut off one of those horns of the two-horned beast and make it a unicorn. And then we start to only champion religious liberty causes. And we really only mean Sabbath issues that affect us personally. And so it becomes, at least it seems to me, it's super self-centered. And so that happens. The other thing that they change that's critical is that they say, okay, it's not really America that's the two-horned beast. It's really just liberal Protestantism within America, and they're going to become so powerful in America that they take over the government. And at that point, they'll enact a national Sunday law, and then America will become the two-horned beast because of liberal Protestants, not really because of the United States government itself. And so they give the government a way out. It's not the beast now, and it's really never going to be the government, at least the secular leaders or whatever. It's just it's really going to be a, a coup by the liberal Protestants. And so those changes become significant, and they are depicted graphically. So if you look at any image of the two-horned beast before World War I, you're going to see it depicted as a leopard, lion, and bear combination. And the reason that they're doing that is because that is the description of the beast that arises from the sea in the first part of Revelation 13. And Adventists were convinced that that beast that comes out of the earth looks just like the one that comes out of the sea because it is made in the image of that beast. And so they believe that American Protestantism of all stripes and types before World War One, not just liberal Protestants, but all stripes and types would be indicative of that beast because they have become like the papacy. And so that's how they depict it. It's a ferocious beast. It's got fierce, jagged teeth. It looks scary, you know. But during World War One, or it's really just a couple of years before, right around the time that the buffalo nickel comes out, we started to depict that beast as a buffalo. As a buffalo. And at first, when Uriah Smith's uh, book on Daniel and Revelation comes out, that buffalo has a little bit of a mean look to it in 1912 when that's published for the first time. But by the time you get to the middle of World War One and, and afterwards, we make that thing super cute, man. That thing is cute. Like, oh, I want to go visit that thing at the zoo. <laughs> and so we make this benign buffalo, and that's the image that dominates our prophecy charts and seminars and discussions, etc., throughout the beginning of the 20th century until you get to World War II. And then we decided to at least make it a little bit more biblical, and we ditched the buffalo for a cute little lamb. But nevertheless, we domesticated it. We domesticated the doctor, not just how we presented it, but also how we depicted that thing. And so that becomes very, very clear. And one of the ways that that happened is that after all of this state surveillance happens, I mean, this was so intense that our leaders were very adamant that they were going to do everything in their power to make sure that we did not come into any conflict with the state. And so immediately after World War I is over, it ends in, uh, in 1918, we start to hold, we start to do something new. We start to hold Bible conferences and ministerial conferences so that we can train our ministers and evangelists and Bible workers. And so the first one is held in 1919, the 1919 Bible Conference, which a lot of people have talked about in relation to Ellen White and other things. But what also is happening at this time is we are teaching our Adventist uh, ministers, Bible workers, and evangelists how to not be, quote-unquote, sensationalists. 
They were really adamant and really stressed hard that you should not do sensationalism. They made rules that our evangelists and Bible workers and ministers had to follow about how they advertised their uh, sermons in newspapers. And they said, you cannot do anything sensationalist, etc. And what does that mean? One of the specific things that they said to do was downplay Adventist distinctive doctrines, draw them in with the gospel. And then once you have them drawn in, then you get to the distinctives. And so what that does, and they're, they're specific about it. Don't talk about the two-horned beast running out of the gate. Save it till later. And then when you do talk about it, talk about it in the way that we've now cultivated that America is not really the beast now, but it's going to become so. And it's only when the national Sunday law is there. So we're not really concerned about civil issues so much. And then also it's really liberal Protestantism that's dangerous. They're the ones who are going to take over the government. And so all of this is happening. The Adventist Church literally created cogs in the denominational sort of machinery. And I don't mean that crassly, but I mean, literally, I mean, they're creating ways to educate and train our ministers to do what they wanted them to do so that they would not have any conflict with the state again. And think about it. By the time you get to World War II, this has been thoroughly, thoroughly enacted in the church. I mean, we are super patriotic during World War II. We had not really been super patriotic before that ever. We had been reluctant non-combatants. We would be non-combatants whenever we were drafted, you know, kind of thing. That was the official position of the church. But during World War II, we made non-combatancy our way to be patriotic, which was also very new for Adventism. And all of these changes start with World War I. We start by making the medical cadet corps and all these kinds of things, which they had good purposes. But nevertheless, they also are changes that are important. And so by the time you get to World War II, and especially whenever you have the victories and the heroism of Desmond Doss, oh, my word. You see book after book after book after book on Seventh-day Adventism in World War II. You had never seen that in, in the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, or World War I. Even though we had, we had Adventists involved in all of those conflicts, as well as some heroic things. And so that represents a significant change. And probably the most crowning achievement of that is Operation White Coat. Operation White Coat, for those who don't know, is a project that the government started in the 1950s. And it lasted for 19 years, and it was during another wave of the Red Scare, during the Cold War, whenever there is a lot of fear of biological warfare. And so the government had been so impressed with Adventists during World War II, Desmond Doss being, uh, of course, uh, the most conspicuous there. And so they say, hey, we get it. You guys are loyal to this country. You are absolutely wonderful, good Americans, 100% American. You just want your Sabbaths off, and you don't want to carry weapons. That's fine. We're happy to accommodate you. So we've got this project called Operation White Coat. We would like to use Seventh-day Adventists as human test subjects so that we can give them all sorts of viruses and chemicals in their bodies so that we can see if we can find anecdotes to biological weapons. And so the Seventh-day Adventist Church agrees, and they join forces with the federal government of the United States of America, and Operation White Coat is born. And roughly about 3,000, almost all Seventh-day Adventists over 19 years are participating in Operation White Coat. And uh, that's how they served. And that is a drastic difference how it had started. Adventism had become something new, something patriotic, something supporting the state, whereas we had been highly critical of the state for the way it had treated religious and civil minorities. And so that is how all of that ends up dying in a nutshell and how things ended up shifting and how we have a, a different kind of Adventism than our pioneers ever knew. So the pressure from the federal government 
was a motivating factor for Seventh-day Adventists in the 20th century to be more mainline evangelical Protestant, in your opinion? Oh, man. You better believe it. I mean, I don't want to imply that the state forced Adventists to do something because that denies Adventist leaders their agency. No, Adventist leaders were willing. They were willing at that time. And so that's also critical to stress. But nevertheless, the thing that really clearly pushes us over the edge here is state surveillance, state oppression. And it's coming from the FBI, from the military, from the post office, from the Department of Agriculture, from the citizen spies that are in the American Protective League. It's coming from every single investigative arms of the state. And we do not yet know. I found this stuff out a couple of years ago, but we do not yet know the depth and breadth of this yet. And it is huge. I can stress that because the changes that I'm making, that I'm, that I'm emphasizing here, I am not the only one who has seen them. Doug Morgan noted that when he wrote his book, Adventism in the American Republic. There's also the work of historian Howard B. Weeks. He wrote his doctoral dissertation, I believe it was at Michigan State University. And believe it or not, the Review and Herald actually published his dissertation in the 1960s. And his book is called Adventist Evangelism in the 20th Century. That he knew absolutely nothing about state surveillance during World War I. And yet, he still recognizes all of these shifts that I'm talking about, the major shifts, like the Bible conferences coming in, trying to prevent sensationalism, all that kind of stuff, that comes from Howard B. Weeks' research. But now that we know, through what I've found, we know that the state was heavily involved in, in pressuring us, that is clearly a very major motivating factor for why this change is being enacted. Whenever there's the threat of not just being in jail, but being in a federal prison for like 20 years, I mean, that's the better part of someone's good working life. And so that was serious. And Adventists were unwilling to hold the line on any other issue besides the National Sunday Law at the time. And so they changed things. And yes, state surveillance is a major factor. I don't want to say it's the only factor, but it is probably the most important factor in all of this. So I do think that we need to do uh, some rewriting of our history so that people know that now that we have discovered this and declassified FBI files. Final question. How should Seventh-day Adventists engage in social activism today based on what we've studied in history? Uh, that's a good question. And I'm going to move now from being a historian to just an Adventist in the 21st century. This is my opinion as a historian, and I'll tell you how it's changed me, okay? I have always been very like unimpressed like i just still i do not like politics in the sense of partisan politics i don't like it I, it drives me nuts and i am a very very proud moderate independent i do not like seeing people especially avidists who are so diehard loyal to a political party or a political candidate or a certain president they're, it's almost like they're blinded by it and so they're so loyal that they cannot see the injustices happening and they, they come up with all sorts of creative excuses and so that really bothers me. And I'm especially more so bothered by it when I found out how our pioneers treated politics in their era. When I found out that they had a very strong passion for advocating for minority rights, that's huge to me. And they were also very strongly anti-partisan. You can vote. They weren't like against voting necessarily. A lot of Adventists didn't vote. And we could explain how that's connected with abolitionism. But the point that they stressed is that you should not become loyal to a party, a political party, because when you do so, it necessarily jeopardizes your faith. And think about it. We have now experienced in, in our world's history two world wars 
Adventism had members across the globe in both of those conflicts. As Adventists entered those conflicts, you can see that they put their loyalty to their nation uh, first. And so there was a consequence to that because the reaction and the reality is, is that American Adventists viewed Germans, including potentially German Adventists, as dangerous, as the enemy. And you see lots of deep suspicion, and that necessarily breaks up God's kingdom that is here now, that he started, but of course is going to be completed uh, when he returns and, and fully establishes it. But you cannot, the point is that our pioneers recognize that you cannot serve God and serve man, and you cannot serve God and serve a political party. Like th there's a danger, a deep dialogical subversive danger to being super, super loyal to a political party because it's going to create a conflict of interest. What happens when we have another worldwide conflict or even one that's not? We have Adventists in the Middle East and other places where there's lots of death happening. How are we going to treat them? And it's, even if they weren't Adventists, they're still human beings and created in God's image. And so I am deeply comforted and I am super proud of the fact that our Adventist pioneers were very, very strong against what I will call partisan politics, party loyalty. And so I think that that affirms something that I already was stressing in my own life and work. However, I too had allowed that belief uh, of not getting involved in politics to say, hey, things like social justice, they're not really my concern. God's going to fix it when he comes again. And when I started to find out that Seventh-day Adventists, our, our pioneers, were, were not just preaching and writing and publishing these things, which I did realize was a political act. I, I, I was like, wow, that really is a political act, and you really can't deny that. But I also saw them signing petitions, petitions to abolish slavery, petitions to grant uh, African-Americans equal rights in the North. I was like, oh, my word. That's very undeniably political. And I said, how can I, as an Adventist, like make some excuse and avoid these things? And so I have, since I have done this research, I have gotten more involved and speaking out as a humanitarian, someone who cares about people. I don't care about political parties. I think that both of them are problematic in this country. And I could go on and on about issues. The way that we're treating immigrants in this country is horrific. Both Democrats and Republicans are dropping the ball in every kind of major way. And we are violating, in my belief, we are violating God's laws by separating husbands from their wives. It's a violation of the Ten Commandments and about marriage. We're ripping kids from their parents. We're treating them inhumanely in these detention centers and in other kinds of places. I mean, this is inhumane and a violation of every kind of law that God has. Plus, there are many texts in the Bible about treating the so-called foreigner in a just manner and not oppressing them. And we are blinded. We are blinded if we get so wrapped up in partisan politics that we can't see that. And so I had become a lot more outspoken on what I call humanitarian issues, because I believe our pioneers did that, and they challenged us to do the same through their actions, through their faith. And they said, this is not just some separate thing. This is part of Adventism. The point is for them, like Ellen White says, if you're pro-slavery, no one in Adventism owns slaves. Alexander Ross was not a slave owner. He was just racist. He was simply racist. And Ellen White says, we cannot have someone like that in our fellowship. Now, I am not advocating here that we're going to go through and, and disfellowship everyone who we say is racist. We have to understand that she was specifically talking about pro-slavery, which is a very different kind of racism. I would like to see us eradicate racism in our churches, and we need to crack down on that. 
I think that we just should discuss how that happens. And so I'm not wanting to say, oh, it's okay to let racism happen now. I, that is not what I'm saying. But the point is, is that even on those things, they made it clear that social justice, and I just simply mean justice to members of society. I don't think I'm saying something, you know, left wing here or whatever. I'm simply saying we must do right like Christ did on earth to humanity. Think of the Good Samaritan. That parable is very clearly about ethnicity differences and what you might call racial differences. Race didn't exist during Christ's lifetime. It's a human invention that's much more recent. But nevertheless, ethnicity clearly, clearly was a thing. And the Levite and the priest, they walk on the other side of the road when someone was in need. And it took someone of a different ethnicity, a minority, one of the oppressed themselves to help someone in need. And we need to take a, a lesson and a cue from the Bible um, as well as our pioneers. And so I would hope that when Adventists hear this, that they stop making those really what I think are lame excuses. Oh, it's politics. We can't get involved in politics or social justices of the devil. Give me a break. Call it by another name if you have to. I don't care. Care for humanity. Care for people. That's what our pioneers did. That's what Christ did. And there is absolutely no reason for us, no excuse for us to do something different. We must, we must, we must. If we are genuine in our faith, if we want to be in heaven, Ellen White says we are journeying to the same heaven. When she's speaking on the race issue, the color line issue around the turn of the century, she says, you guys, we are forming our characters now on earth for heaven. And we are journeying to the same heaven. If you are harboring racism in your heart now, how can you be there? How can you live there when we're all going to be living together as equals? And so this is vitally important to the central message of Adventism. You cannot do anything else but be so-called socially or politically active, in my opinion. But I don't think you should get involved in partisan politics and getting, becoming loyal to, to party. But you don't have to do so to help people. So that's how I've been changed by my own research. I didn't go in expecting to find these things. I didn't go in expecting or, or wanting to find some excuse for being like politically active. I was not politically active before this. I simply was not. I started to wake up and realize that there was a serious issue uh, that needed to be dealt with and that our pioneers did deal with it. And I said, if they did it, how can I make some excuse? And so that, Peter, is, is how I would recommend people respond now. And the other thing I want to stress is this. This is a message to white Americans. I'm not singling us out because I think you're somehow just a horrible racist person. But think about it. White Americans have been and still are the majority of this country. White Americans have been many times in the past history of this nation realized that there's a problem and injustice that's happening to a, a racial minority or a religious minority or whatever it might be. And they have advocated for what was right. And then they got tired and worn out. Because activism, speaking out for the oppressed and helping them and actually making changes on your local level uh, as well as the national level, that is exhausting work. It's exhausting. And so white Americans have time after time again, they've given up. And what I want to stress to you that you may not have thought about if you're a white American like myself, that's a privilege you have. That's a privilege you have because we have not been oppressed as white people. There has not been a consistent history in our nation ever that I even know in world history where people have singled out white people 
consistently and said, we are going to murder them and harm them physically and in every other kind of way, economically, whatever, because they are white. That just has not happened in our country's history. But that has happened to racial minorities. And because it has happened and continues to happen to them, they don't have the privilege of saying, I'm tired. I've been fighting for this my whole life. I just want to break. I need to stop. They don't have the privilege of stopping because they are being oppressed. And so white Americans, I hope, and my, my prayer for you is that you would not stop as well. We must continue this fight until Christ returns. God is ultimately going to eradicate all sin, but that does not mean that we should not fight against it while we're here on earth. And racism is a heinous, heinous sin. Professor Burton, thank you so much for sharing with us from all your heart this beautiful history and counsel for us as a church. We really appreciate your time. I know your time is so valuable, and we're just so happy that you were able to come to our podcast. Thank you so much. And before we close, can you have a closing word of prayer for us? Sure, I can. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much for, for being our God, for not giving up on us as people or as Adventists. Thank you that we can learn and we can continue to be challenged by our pioneers and the faith that they demonstrated for us. I pray that we can not be afraid to be bold uh, whenever sin needs to be condemned in this world. I pray that we can stand out strong as your ambassadors, that we may not be ashamed of the gospel, that we may not be ashamed of our heritage in preaching the gospel and preaching against civil and religious injustice. I pray that we can... Uh, Look to you, be strengthened by you and the, the life that you lived and demonstrated for us here. And most importantly, God, I pray that you come soon because we know that it cannot be eradicated until you come and it will not be eradicated until you come. But please, until you do come, help us to have the energy to fight as you would fight the good fight of faith and nonviolent ways to help this world realize that oppression cannot happen, that people are created in your image. Amen.